What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Brian Wagner. This week on the show, we have a super awesome and special guest, the world's fastest blind man, Dan Parker. Dan, what's going on? Oh, man, not much. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. And uh, just recouping a little bit at home from the wild last several months to set that Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely get into that for sure because it's – to call what you've been through a journey I think is truly an understatement, honestly. It, it's it's very hard to put it into words, I think, correct? Yeah, it, it's um, having some extreme highs and some extreme lows in life. Uh, I've been blessed and, um, you know, but what I went through in life has, has been challenging, to say the least. Well, I, you know, I, I was doing some research on you and I think to really tell your story, we need to do a big rewind on things because I think, you know, when we're going through life, where we end up is ultimately determined by where we came from and where we started. And I, you know, drag racing is a very personal thing to many people. You know, how did you end up getting into the sport? Well, my mother was eight months pregnant with me and she won a drag race. So I'm, I'm a second generation racer. My father, Jimmy Parker has raced stock and super stock his whole life. So when mom was eight months pregnant, dad was racing our local drag strip, Phoenix City, Alabama, Phoenix drag strip. She said, you know, and, and I never knew this till after she passed away, but my uncle said that she drove her Chevelle to the track one day and brought, you know, picnic lunch. And dad said, what are you doing? She said, I'm setting this picnic. He goes, I'm racing your car too. So he drove his car, his race car and her daily driver. He got down to him and himself, and they told him they weren't going to pay first and second unless both cars were on track. So he put mom in the Chevelle, and she won. Whether he let her win or not, you know, I don't know, but she won a race. Um, early in life, I realized I absolutely sucked at stick and ball sports, but I was attracted to anything mechanical, bicycles, mini bikes. Um, at eight years old, dad entered me in a mini bike class at Fink City in an all motorcycle race. I came in second place um, all through high school. I worked at bicycle shops. And then when I graduated, um, we built a 73 Nova foot brake car hatchback. And I started bracket racing, you know, consistent pretty much every weekend. And then in 1997, I got the opportunity to drive for Ellis Miller Pro Mod car. Um, and that sort of started my path, you know, from driving Pro Mods from then on. You know, obviously, I drove a lot of cars testing, and I had customers' cars in the chassis shop. But um, in 1999, I started driving for Bill George. And in 2005, we, Bill and I won the ADRL Pro Nitrous World Championship. And in 2008, I ran it up to Billy Harper in Valdosta, and we were the first side-by-side three-second pass in Pro Nitrous history. So I had a long history of drag racing starting from an early age, yes, you can say. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a lot of times the the biggest theme I've found over the years talking to racers and whatnot is that the the thread that ties a lot of it together is family. And you know, it's down with you, you know, your first you know, one of your first trips down the track was when you, you know, were in the womb at eight months old. That's a that's a first man. I've heard a lot of stories about first trips down the track, but uh that's the first one. Yeah, 
you know, I, I remember we used to live about three miles from PC drag strip and me and my brother would ride in the race car on the ramp truck going to the drag strip. You know what I mean? So, we, you know, we, that's just, you know, my whole life just grew up at racing, you know, dad working on race cars, and, you know, it's just all I've ever known, you know, had known any different. And that's, you know, it's such a crazy bond that ties us to that. You know, I was raised around racing myself and, you know, I honestly can't picture my life without some form of motorsports, and I honestly can't. Um, do, do you kind of feel the same way? Oh, yeah. You know, and then, you know, March 31st, 2012, I had a very violent wreck um, that left me 100% blind for life. Uh, it was so violent. It was 100. I was in the left lane. We were testing a brand new Fulton. Um, 864-53 bore spread motor on the first full pass. The car made a hard right turn into the concrete wall and it tore a section wall down. Um, the car went to tumbling and then it, it ripped every, you know, the motor, transmission, firewall, steering column, everything was ripped out of the car. My feet was hanging in midair and um, the pictures have all been floating around the internet for several years and um, I would wait two weeks later from induced coma to find out that I was 100% blind for life. My my head trauma was so severe that my brain swole, compressed my optic nerve and killed it. And um, along with, you know, numerous, my whole right arm had to be reconstructed, several surgeries on it and traumatic brain injury and skin graft sites, you know, for a wound in my armpit that was ripped open. And uh, so it, it was a, you know, a hard 180 change of life. You know, I lost my business. Um, I own Parker Chassis, where I had a chassis shop. And, um, I never thought I'd be involved in motorsports again, but I have been blessed. Yeah. Um, that that was, you know, kind of looking into, you know, your, your chassis builder and whatnot. And that being, you know, your site's the key to that, but you still do machine work. You know, the, the Blind Machinist is, is your, your, your website. How do you still do machine work? <laughs> well, I, so I graduated the Louisiana Center for the Blind March 31st, 2015, three years from the date. And they teach a wood shop, not as an employment skill, but as a confidence builder. And I was already out in the shop some six weeks after I came home from the hospital you know, I started running my mill machine a little bit. A friend of mine, Mark Sis, bought me some adaptive, adaptive equipment that has a box that speaks out loud the measurement for my calipers. But then once I graduated LCB, it gave me the confidence to sort of bring, raise the bar. And so um, I, I just got shopping. I run my mill machine and lathe. Um, I hand machine custom aluminum pins and sell them at theblindmachinist.com. And I make parts for the race car, you know, and, uh, and I've had a few people bring me some job shop work, you know, so, you know, people, you know, need some machine work done, they'll bring it. And, you know, if I understand it, I'll tell them I can do it. And if I don't, then I'll, you know, tell them I can't do it. But, you know, so it's just, I figure out another way to do what I've done my whole life. You know, I've always been a machinist and, and um, so I enjoy it. And I go out and shop and it keeps, keeps my mind um, from going in dark places, definitely. Now, th there's something else I wanted to I, I wanted to kind of discuss with you too, and to me, it's something I like to talk about is with guys that you know, 
used to that, that raced in that early era of pro mod racing back in you know like you said back in the 90s and whatnot and i always like to hear the stories about things that happened during that time because of how different it is in my opinion what we see now you know that's kind of the, the pioneering days oh yeah that the, the the 90s were just amazing pro mod you know that's what made, the class then is what made me fall in love with it and sadly today it's all ruined it's all cookie cutter cars there's no personalities there's no excitement you know track prep you know all of it you know back then when you had you know cannons willis's and i've been blessed uh, gary wells has one of cannons willis's i've driven it a few times and, and um you know the creativity back then was what made the class you know from the wild bunch up in the northeast you know i remember one of my first pro mod races i went to was in twigs and there was a couple of guys um russell and wizard they had a i think it was old bob glidden you know mid-70s mustang too well they ran the thing on um alcohol injected with a little nitro they had side exhaust and they backed up and the thing sitting there island caught the racetrack on fire <laughs> and i'm like that's my kind of crap right there you know that uh um and you know back then you know the average guy and a couple of his buddies could put together a car, be competitive, go have some fun. And, and you know, we I ran the Dixie, it was called Dixie Pro Stock back then. That, you know, it was a, you know, matric, you know, bookend race deal. And um, I think in 1998, I raced 42 times in one year. Oh, wow. Between, between quick eights on Saturday night and match races, I think it was 40, 42 times in one year. So we, you know, we stayed busy. But, you know, it's good. You know, you're traveling. And, and um, like I said, ProMod is so much different than it was back then, you know. it's Yeah, I mean, it, to me, I remember growing up, I, you know, in Northeast Ohio. And, you know, Killer Brooks was one of the racers right down the road from us. And he had his, you know, his ring girls that would come to the starting line. And <laughs> all the ProMods had wild names. I mean, it was yep. a circus. It was a modern-day gladiatorial drag racing circus yeah you know and the first the first adrl race was the outlaw versus the nhra guys at jackson and i was the fastest nitrous car there I, uh, mike hill at the time had a, a 63 vet i drove and tuned it and uh went i think i went 407 409 and um i was faster than shannon and castellana and all of them you know but uh there was still some creativity back then, but then, then, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, it it, uh, it started become more cookie cutter, and sadly, I think it's lost a lot of its attraction, you know, from what Promod really started as, you know, like I said, you know, Cannon walk around with Mohawk and his, you know, Willis's or Studebakers, and you know, him and Mooney building the funny car bodies, you know, to to just everything you know cool in between you know studebakers just everything was create creative back then that's what was the attraction well i think too if you look at it that pro mods kind of turned into the modern day fuel alters where it was you didn't know what they were going to do they were loud you know they were just they were different and insane and it was just the the ingenuity and the people that were willing to try things, I think, really helped kind of set the stage for the class. 
Yes, exactly. Like, it, you know, back then, nitrous was just, you know, that was legit a black art. Because, yeah. you know, a lot of people, you, you say nitrous, and the first thing, you know, a lot of people would say is, oh, you're going to blow it up. You know, it's just yeah. like you're this mad scientist with chemicals trying to make this stuff work. And a lot of times, I mean, it was, if you look at stuff, you know, the more modern cars, it was pretty primitive in Stone Age, and you guys were still figuring out to go fast. Yep. You know, and um, my first race that I won driving for Ellis, we were ahead of Dixie Pro Stop race in Dothan, Alabama that night. And I never forget because Hurricane Danny was coming through Florida and Alabama. And we was at Ellis's house. And he goes, well, they got a quick eight in Huntsville. And the weather channel was on, looked like it was going to be clear bear. And Ellis's wife, Miss Becky, who was side by side with him and worked on the car religiously with him. Um, she's like, well, that's a long way. See, about two minutes later, Ellis said, whoever's going to Huntsville, get in the car and get in the truck. We drove to Huntsville, Alabama, and I won the last two rounds on whole shots and uh, running 430s. You know, back, you know, now they laugh at you running 430s. But that was, you know, for Saturday night quick eight, levers and sticks and a clutch and, you know, sketchy tracks, you know, we were having fun. Just didn't realize at what point era and uh, that we were at the heyday of ProMod at the time. You know, that that's the other thing is that back in the day, ProMod's, would race on tracks now that a lot of guys wouldn't even want to take a fast bracket car down, you know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yep. but it, it was that outlaw mentality. And I, I think pro mod as a class has changed to a certain degree. You know, the, uh, some of the insanity has been pulled out of it, but I think that honestly is kind of the, the, the MO for drag racing is things that used to be really kind of wild and, borderline unsafe sketchy and terrifying they they get refined and i do agree that there is a certain point where there's you know some of the cookie cutterness i'm not a fan of but at the same time the performance level these door cars put out now is just it's unbelievable the, the performance level is amazing but to me there should not be anything in pro mod newer than 1972 body style i buy that you know you know that that the body styles is the creativity, you know, that's what made pro mod, you know, and, you know, they, you know, I know NHRA gave some weight breaks to some of the older body styles. And I think the Studebakers and the Willis's and all that, as far as I know, nobody's taking advantage of it, but, you know, um, you know, that is what made pro mod. That was the attraction, you know, the wildness, the creativity. And, uh, you know, now, of course I can't see anything, but everybody, they, they say everyone was basically a new Camaro, you know, so. You know, at one point they were bitching at one time it was all 63 Corvettes. So, but at least it was old cool stuff. Well, well, Dan, let me paint a picture for you that you would probably would have enjoyed seeing the NHR or the NMCA race at Martin, Michigan last year when Craig Sullivan debuted as 49 Merc. Be oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had plenty of people describe it to me, and that's my kind of stuff because Johnny Rocca's 50 Mercury was always one of my favorites. I don't know if you remember it. You know, he always had moon disc on the front, yeah. tires, white walled. You know, that's what ProMod's about. Yeah, Craig's Mercury. I had a friend of mine tell me, he said, Dan, he said, you would fall in love with that thing, you know, because that's what it's about right there. Well, well, beyond that, there was a shot of that someone had taken a picture of, you know, ProMod's in the lanes. And what I saw was awesome. It was his Merc. It was one Randy Adler's 57 Chevy, 55 Chevy. Uh, mm -hmm. Chip King had his, you know, uh, 
oh the the Mach One style Mustang, and then there was another car there that was like looked like an old school Pro Mod. Forget which one it was, but you, you know you get the point that like this is what Pro Mod really makes it cool and looks like is when you have all these different body styles. Yep, that's right. And again, it, it, it for me it's the fascinating part about it was back in the the early days just the the experimentation that you would see and guys trying stuff and moving to the different power adders and not being afraid to go off on a weird tangent just to see if it would work. Yep. That, and that's what it took. Yeah. And, and like you said, there, there was a, there, there's been a shift to the more the performance side of things, which to a certain degree, you know, that's kind of how things happen in drag racing, but I would, you know, absolutely love to see, more the old school cars trying to make, you know, the, the full quarter mile poles with the NHRA. Yeah, no doubt. But on the flip side of that, the, the NHRA is the only one still doing quarter mile racing, which is some of the drivers would tell you is a little bit, a little bit sketch at times because it's, you know, you're taking a full body car and trying to go 250 plus miles an hour with it. That's a, that's a feat of uh, greatness. It is. And, you know, when I started this Corvette project, I put a lot of emphasis on aerodynamics. And I won't venture to say, ain't been too many of them pro mods in the wind tunnel. Mm -hmm. and, and there's probably something gained there for performance, but also stability. Because, you know, I remember before the wreck, they were already starting to get loose on the top end and, you know, um, having some crashes. But, you know, uh, I think there's definitely some big stuff gained if they would concentrate on aerodynamics. Because, like I said, 250 miles an hour in a 110 inch wheelbase door car is is tough. Yeah, I mean, a pro mod is you know Bill uh, Bill Bader up at Norwalk always says that they're the most ill handling, ill tempered vehicles on the face of the earth, and that man ain't lying because you're fighting that vehicle the whole way down the track. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, you look at there's been some top fuel drivers try to drive them things and and not have great success because. You know, they think because they can drive eleven thousand horsepower, getting you know three or four thousand horsepower is easy, but it ain't because them and, and things are they're on the edge from from A to B. You yeah, know, they're tough. Yeah, they they have a mind of their own, and you're just in there trying to control it. And especially, again, you, you mentioned earlier that you know back in the day that pro mods had clutches and levers in them, a whole different level yeah. of crazy. Yeah, that's right. And all sketchy Saturday night quick eight tracks. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Track prep wasn't nothing like it is nowadays. This, this track prep nowadays makes heroes out of zeros because, you know, it, it you know, they're, they're so glued down. You know, you got a wide margin of error where, you know, you got a wide window. If you just keep the front end on the ground, you can go down track a lot of times. Now, I always like to ask racers about their first experience doing something. You, you said you've raced a lot of stuff before you got into a pro mod talk to me about what it was like the first time you raced a pro mod because i'm sure that had to be an interesting feeling getting in that car the door shuts and it gets real it's like all right i gotta do a burnout and wheel this thing down the track what was that like so i was helping ellis finish his 57 chevrolet and his daughter lynn was gonna start driving his beretta and he had a five, he bought a used old 500 inch, I think it was a Grumpy Jenkins motor. And um, she, she was going to run on, you know, natural aspray for a little while. So we was up there one night and somebody else, a local guy was 
sort of shaking down the bread up for Lynn because he had changed his seat and Ellis weighed 300 pounds at the time and Lynn is small, so he couldn't fit in the car anymore. So he asked, he said something. I said, well, I can drive it. He looked at me straight now. He said, you can drive it? I said, yeah. He says, we're going to track tomorrow. I'm like, holy crap. You know, I wrote a check. I can't cash. So we went, tested Breda, and like the set, first thing that passed, oil pump belt came off of it, but it didn't hurt it. We came home that night, rolled a set of rod bearings in it, just check it, and everything's fine. So I gradually started driving the Breda and getting it shaken down, helping Lynn adapt to it. And um, we were in Dothan, Alabama, and I went 470s in the Breda. Well, the next day, Ellis went out first round, and the car was bogging and acting crazy. And he told me, he says, go out there and run on one system and let me watch it. It, it bogged, and I just let off of it. Eyes look back to the pits. He's like, well, why didn't you back it up and try it again? I said, back it up, ain't going to fix it. So Ellis's nephew, Donnie, Ellis had a light that came on in the car when the nitrous was armed. He know, Donnie noticed that light flickered. Well, the clutch switch was bad. And this is a brand-new car, but, you know, brand-new stuff breaks. So we cut the one out of the Breda, wired it up in the 57. He told me to go and make a pass on one system. So here I am the night before, the fastest I'd ever been was 470s. And I make a pass that 57, and I barely get it off on the edge of the return road. It was a little short at Dothan back then. I'm getting out of the car, sort of composing myself, and I hear a track record over the radio. And I asked the shutdown guy, I said, how fast I go? And he called, I think I went 436 or 437. And so I went from 470s to 430s in one lick. So we get back to the pits, and Ellis is uh, looking, and he goes, the daggum race pack didn't work. And I just yelled at I said, good, because I couldn't turn that shift light off. <laughs> you know, and uh, um, so that was my experience. First time running, you know, decently fast on Pro Mod was I sort of got through to the fire in a testing situation on one kit, set the track record, and um, that sort of set the stage for me to drive for Ellis in the future. You know, he... One morning, we were getting ready to go to a race, and Becky called me, told me to bring my fire suit. Ellis's uh, vertigo was acting up, so I drove and ended up driving pretty much the rest of the year for him. <laughs> that, that's wild that, you know, one of those situations, you make a hit like that, and, you know, I guess it comes down to the fact you didn't know how fast <laughs> you go until you, you hear it afterwards, and it must have felt like a pretty solid run then that you didn't think it went, uh, went too terribly bad, right? Yeah, it went, you know, went good. I knew it was fast, but uh, I didn't know it was that big on fast, much less that the track record fast. And the record stayed for several years, if I remember right, you know. And just, um, you know, but that gave Ellis confidence that, you know, I could compose myself and, you know, handle stress and, you know, act like I had some sense. And uh, so it opened the, opened the door for opportunities. So I drove for Ellis the rest of that year. Then he sold the Breda and then Lynn, took over driving the 57 she drove it for the next 15 years you know better and um you know so it, that was my first opportunity to, to drive pro mod i'll always be thankful for ellis for giving me a shot now when you step up to racing something like that did, did that really change on how you had to approach your entire mindset and what you did as far as being a racer, because that's everything starts happening a heck of a lot quicker with one of those cars. It does. You know, I've always 
you know, been able to adapt different situations because I drove, you know, testing cars and grudge driving grudge cars. I was always the type of guy that, you know, everything didn't have to be perfect. You know, I, I know some people get the steering wheels off a sixteenth of an inch, they can't make a pass, you know. And I'm a, I was the type of guy, the steering wheel could be upside down. I'm gonna figure out how to drive it, you know. And um so I had a lot of experience driving different things and that helped me adapt to Pro Mod, knowing that, you know, every pass is not gonna be the same. You know, you you're gonna come up there and the start line gonna be greasy during the middle of the day and might be decent nighttime and you know um you just you just always have to adapt on the fly to your your circumstances and uh so that, that helped me you know uh shape me into the driver i was i guess what i'm trying to say that you know a lot of experience different situations and i think honestly that's what separates the good the better from the best drivers is being able to just figure it out because you know, Lord knows in drag racing, especially everything is never going to be perfect. There's always going to be something you got to figure out and adapt to. And the faster the car is, that grows exponentially. Yeah. And my dad always preached to me, you race yourself. Don't worry about who's in the lane. You know, don't, don't shoot yourself in the foot. You know, think about them. You race your lane and run the best you can. And if you know, wind lights will come on sometimes and sometimes it ain't. But I was always... Uh, you know, good that I didn't let, you know, who I was racing intimidate me um, or affect my driving style or anything I did. You know, I, I, I raced my lane, you know, and that's the reason I had a lot of success, I think, back in the day. Oh, that that totally is one, I think, one of the most successful mindsets you can have as a racer because, you know, there's many times where I've been doing the interviews for racers and I'll ask them, you know, who you got next round? And they'll they'll flat say, I don't know. I'm racing the yeah. track. You go, that's it. I'm trying to go as fast as I can. You know, the Pope could be in the other lane of the Pope mobile. Don't care. Going to drag him. You know, one of the stories in 08, we run up to Harper in Valdosta. It's the first round. I had Castellana. Of course, we know he, you know, he's one of the best pro my racers there is. I'm number three qualifier and he's 14. And, uh, and we've gotten into threes and testing and, that's back when we ran high threes. That was fast. But uh, um, first round, you know, it was heat of the day, and Bill said, you got a 390 tune-up. And I said, no. I said, that ain't a 390 track out there. And uh, I said, I got set up to run as fast as I think I can run. I think I went like 406, 407. And I, I you know, put out Mike. He shook the tires. And Bill came put, pick me up on the return road. He goes, I'll leave you alone. You do what you want to do the rest of the day. <laughs> you, know, he, he, you know, and he knew. And, and every round, I gradually picked up, you know, and got in the threes and the semis and went in the threes and the finals. But uh, it wasn't enough to hold off Harper. But, uh, you know, I raced my lane, you know. I went on track every time, raced my lane, raced as fast as I thought I could go, and not try to shoot myself in the foot and give it away. You know, th thinking of that, I, I want to get your take on something. You know, I remember when Frankie Taylor and I forget the guy he was racing, you know, they set basically the record for the world's quickest and fastest side-by-side -side door car race in the quarter mile where they went like, you know, what, 570s in the quarter mile, basically, you know, top alcohol numbers. And I've heard Frankie talk about that that was definitely an interesting slash terrifying ride at the same time because, you know, the, those cars just, they're not meant to go that fast, exactly. you know, at the top end what's your take on, you know, the, the level of, 
I guess, sketchiness that's approved and, you know, what it's like going that fast where it's like, man, this is, this is a bit much. This is excessive. You, as a racer, you don't think about it, but you know, there's definitely moments in time that you, you get it back at the pitch. You're like, man, you know, that, that went a little further. I wanted it to, or, or, you know, like I said, that was sketchy down there. And, you know, and, um, we ran a, a big single parachute and sometimes that thing would pull the car around. I've told people, I said, this thing's here in the shutdown area than it is in the going down the track. So, you know, there's always a, um, a few passes that, that get your attention, you know, and like I said, Franklin run to the quarter mile back then, you know, cause I, heck, I, what's the fastest door car, like 270 something, I think. Yeah. Know, yeah. It's crazy, you know, and that, that's, that's another level of crazy right there. Yeah. It was, it was like, the 270 number. Yeah. Yep, you know. I, I couldn't imagine going that fast in a door car. That's just, yeah. out the back door, that's got to be one of those things where if you could slow time down, again, you would enjoy it for that second, but at the same time, if your 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 intelligence started, your mind started going, <laughs> wow, this, this shouldn't be happening. Exactly. You know, that, that to me is what, what's mind-blowing that that guys would would pull you know that they would do something like that and you know it's the, the it's a testament that the cars even stayed on the ground honestly going that fast yeah because that's why i said that not being aerodynamic testing on these cars that should be you know and then you got scott palmer with that you know hey let's stick a let's stick a nitro like a legit big show top fuel engine in a pro mod and yeah. i've said it time and again the nhra looks at that thing and it's like they've they're they're it scares them because the last thing they want to see is a flipping door car going 300 plus in the quarter mile which that car could do yeah oh yeah which i think scott is one of the very few people that would be crazy enough to try to make a full lick in that vehicle because mm. that, that that's that's just a different level now th there's I want to kind of hear this side of the story on things. You know, we, we talked about your accident, what happened afterwards, you're in the shop, you know, running the machines. How did it, how did the idea come to mind to try to, you know, start setting the records that you've set and get back behind the wheel or, you know, riding the bike that you rode to, to set the record? How did, how did all that start? Well, um, about six months after the wreck, um, I was in, I was in a dark spot, you know, I, I was blind. I lost my business, verge losing my house. Um, and I was on the verge of suicide. You know, I, I was, I done figured out my exit plan, you know, mysteriously when I came home from the hospital, all my guns were gone. You know, my family knew basically the, the risk of that was high. And, um, so we, you know, my house is about 300 foot off the road and, Long story short, I taught Jennifer to teach me how to go get the mail. You know, well, my plan was logging trucks came down the road about every 30 minutes. So I was just going to walk in front of the logging truck. I didn't figure out my exit plan. And um, I went to bed one night thinking about my brother and my mom. My brother passed away in 09, and my mom passed away just six months before the wreck. But Chris was loved the bottom of the salt flats. And he told me about it. A story about four guys from France. They designed and built a motorcycle that they could take apart. They put it in their luggage. They flew to the United States. They rented a car, drove to Bonneville, put it together, and they each got a record with, without 
uh, fairing with without sidecar, a little 50cc bike. So I went to bed thinking about Chris, and I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, the most vivid dream that I could race again. I could become the first blind man to race Bonneville. I never went back to sleep that night. Jennifer woke up, and uh, I told her what I was going to do. She said, okay, and my life was saved at that point. It gave me a purpose. And uh, so needless to say, um, we've all heard the saying that goes over like a fart in church. Well, when you announce, you know, six months after you're almost killed in racing that you're going to build a motorcycle, it, didn't, it doesn't go over too well with most. And, um, well, I never imagined I'd have it built so soon. I just had a blessing. A lot of companies came aboard, helped me, and people volunteered time. And um, so I, re- I had the motorcycle 75% finished before I even had permission to race it. Uh, when I first reached out to Dennis Manning at the Bub Motorcycle Speed Trials, he told me he wouldn't even consider allowing me to race unless I made it a three-wheeler to take balance out of the equation. And I said, okay. And so uh, I had my jig where I was building the Pro Mod motorcycles for George Price at Star Racing, the, the, the uh, drag baggers from Matt Smith and Alan Abbey and some Suzuki's. So I had that sitting there. So I started, you know, making fixtures and built the frame and uh, people just started donating parts and time and um, the National Federation of the Blind came on and helped me get to Bonneville both years. And um, so my first, so in 2013, roughly 16 or 18 months after my wreck, I became the first blind man to race Bonneville. I returned in 14 and set my FIM class record that has no exemptions for blindness as I'm still to date the only blind man in the world that's ever raced with no human assistance. Uh, for, good friend of mine before the wreck, Patrick Johnson, as, a, as an engineer at Boeing Phantom Works, and he designed and built me a guidance system that gives me audible feedback so I know how to correct my steering. So from the time, you know, Jennifer tells me the course is clear till I come to complete stop, nobody helps me. So I raced against my sighted peers. And um, so my official record at Bonneville is 62.05 miles per hour in the 51 to 85 cc two-stroke single-cylinder cycle car class. And that's where they classify three-wheelers, you know, whether it's two in the front, two in the back. And um, so the, that motorcycle legitimately saved my life. You know, that's that's how I got started um, back in motorsports blind. So let me get this straight. You honestly barely survive a horrific wreck in a pro mod, you know, going through a dark space, and you get back into motorsports, the first thing is on a motorcycle. If that like isn't the level of gangster that's like <laughs> amazing i don't know what is because racing a motorcycle of any kind that's terrifying for people who still have all of their senses but doing it blind man that's on a different level in my opinion you got some you got some balls at clang uh, you know it didn't seem abnormal to me you know it just it i knew it was different and i knew it was unique but I was just trying to do the best thing I could do to stay sane, you know, and sadly, some very close people, a friend, you know, family, friends of mine, they didn't see it that way, you know, and uh, people go around town talking about how stupid I was and I just wanted attention and, you know, all this and all that. And I was just trying to stay sane. I was just trying to give my, have a purpose in life because, you know, at that point, 
I didn't have any purpose. And, um, but, you know, to be back, you know, it pushed me to learn how to use my iPhone to, you know, network with the racing community again. Um, you know, like I said, it, it point blank, it saved my life. I would not be here today if it was not for that motorcycle. I'm just like, like I said, that, that just the idea that it's like, yeah, I'm blind. I'm, you know what? I'm going to start racing a motorcycle. That that's just, dude, that's, that takes it to a next level. And you go out and again, going to land speed racing is something that I guess it's got to be different for you because, you know, as a sighted person, I've, you know, been to drag racing and been to land speed and it's a different kind of feel like just sensory wise and across the board i tell people a lot of times it's like the it's almost like the version of golf in motorsports because it's very it feels prim and proper it's not like what we're used to in drag racing and you stepped into that world without your sight and that that again takes it again to another level i, I never i never went to bonneville before the wreck so you know first time i walked on salt i had in my head what it looked like but you know, I, I never witnessed it, you know, sighted. And, um, you know, I always liked the salt flats and I actually was working on building a, a belly tanker somewhat at the house and dreamed of building one before I went blind. But, you know, um, it, it's, it's a unique situation, the way it all came to work out and, um, and upsetting that record as far as I know, it still stands today. I, I'm not sure. Um, it still stands today than than that open that motorcycle open doors for opportunities. I've taught machine shop at a local high school as a part time para pro. I've I've had a job working in bicycle shop putting together bikes and you know um it opened a lot of opportunities for me that I wouldn't have had, you know, quote unquote as a normal blind person, you know, and uh it and then this led to other things like my Corvette, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about the Corvette because I mean, man, that I'm looking at this now is we're going through the story and it's like it keeps getting ratcheted to another level that you know you have a motorcycle, you set these records. A lot of people would have been like, man, I've accomplished a lot. But Dan Parker goes, I'm going to get behind the wheel of a Corvette. How did that come about? Yeah, so I've had people tell me that. My story is one of the best comeback stories in auto racing history that nobody knows about, you know, because so few people know about it in, you know, perspective to the racing community. But so after I graduated LCB and came home, I just, I've always had a project, a goal. I've always been a goal-oriented goal type person. And um, Mike Newman in England had the Guinness record for the uh, – He's blind, but they classified the fastest blindfolded person and a 200.51 miles an hour. So at first I started building a Lakester and man, I would call companies, tell them what I was doing. And it was so far outside the box. I was just dismissed as absolutely crazy. So I said, I want to find something that, you know, the average person can relate to. So I was on Facebook one morning and a 2008 flood salvage, Corvette with missed interior and a motor was for sale in Oklahoma City. And my uncle Nick lives in Oklahoma City. And he went and looked at it for me. 
and I had just sold a van I had, my last asset, and I had just enough money, and I bought the Corvette. And um, that started that, hell, almost right five years ago now, you know, that I started the Corvette to set the Guinness World Record for the world's fastest blind man. And um, it's been a long battle. You know, I've had a lot of people help and donate time and money and um, products, and I've been blessed for every one of them, but it ain't been easy. You know, I'm not a rich person that wrote a, a check to an engineering firm and said, build me a car with a guidance system. When it's ready, tested, bring it to me, and I want to go step in it and drive it. You know, that's same with the motorcycle. I'm the one that did all the tests on the motorcycle. I'm the one that was running off the side of the runway, North Alabama in the grass, and missing telephone poles, testing all this guidance system stuff. And um, so the Corvette in the end of 19, it was it was 75% finished. Um, the producer of Jay Leno's Garage found out about my story and they reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in filming the episode. And the end of February was their last date. Well, the East Coast Time Association had a date at the spaceport in New Mexico and um, in February. So when I got the commitment from Leno's Garage, that gave me enough leverage to secure some sponsorship. And I was blessed. Chip Lofton from strutmasters.com, you know, we know sponsors many people in racing. He came on board and Harbin Electric and several other people came on board to, to get me to spaceport. And that got the car finished. And um, so my first maiden pass was for the film of the Leno and I went 153.8. Um, and it just turned out cool. Well, then COVID hit. And it's everything stopped. You know, here I was, car just sitting there. I didn't have, you know, I had some other sponsors pull out. You know, obviously for COVID, they couldn't afford it and totally understandable. And um, uh, so it sat. Well, then fall of 2020, the National Federation of Blind reached out to me. And they helped me with motorcycle. And in 2021 was going to be their 10-year anniversary for the Blind Driver Challenge which was they designed a car where Virginia Tech, the blind person, drives, totally drives, 100% obstacle avoidance. So if you go to YouTube and you search Blind Driver Challenge, you can see the video of now President Riccobono driving around Daytona Motor Speedway. It's not wasn't fast, but he's avoiding obstacles and everything. And, um, well, so we were supposed to attempt the Guinness record in November of 2021 within the Delta variant. That really ramped up, so we had to postpone it till March. And it worked out that I set the record March 31st, 2022, exactly 10 years to the date of my wreck that caused my blindness. So my first record run, I went 210 miles an hour. I backed it up with 212. So I hold the Guinness World Record for the world's fastest blindfolded person at 211.043 miles an hour. Well, let's put that in perspective. There's a lot of people out there that have their sight that would have a hard time going that fast. And you're doing it like you legit, like you said, blindness, blindfold. I want to know what's it like going that fast? You know, the, the sensation feel, because we all get that sensation from speed. What's it like, you know, when you used to do it with your sight compared to how you do it without your sight? Is, is it a is it a more visceral, like, is the feeling enhanced? What's it like going 200 miles an hour plus? I have no, 
I have no idea how fast I'm going because the car I designed, it's got three mufflers on it because I need to be as quiet as possible so I can hear my guidance system. So I have molded earbuds. So the guidance system works. We plot the center line of the course from one end to the other. When I go one foot right or left, I start getting a tone in that ear. The further off center line I go, the tone increases like doo, doo, doo. Well, if the tone is maintaining level, that means I'm going straight and parallel. I just might be a little right or left, which doesn't matter, you know, and um, as long as I'm not outside my boundaries. So between the molded earbuds, a helmet on, and mufflers, I have no idea I'm going that fast. You know, I know I'm going fast, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I couldn't tell the difference between 175 and 210 and because um, I can barely hear the motor running. And, um, you know, I pull the parachutes. I can definitely tell they're tugging, you know, the parachute they're tugging more than, you know, before. But uh, I tell everybody it's far harder to drive that Corvette than as a pro mod because it's an extreme exercise and concentration, smoothness, reaction, maintaining focus, maintaining, you know, uh, your nerves and concentration. It, it, it's, it's tough. It is tough, you know, and um, it's real easy for that thing to get away from you. And, you know, 200 miles an hour, you're going to football field per second. You know, so when you're blind, it, it's, uh, it adds a lot of complexity to the story, as you can imagine. <laughs> I just figured like the 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 sensation of the acceleration and the speed would be so much more pronounced again because like you said you you don't you don't realize how much you process with your eyes and your sight until it's gone. Yeah, you know I'm in the car so tight, head containment seat, non Hans device that it's got such a tight torque converter in it that it doesn't accelerate fast. You know through first gear, you know so then once it sells in second. It, it's you know it's starting to move it it goes into high gear at about 140 miles an hour and um we turn on the nitrous 150 for 15 seconds and um so the nitrous turned off six seconds for the finish line so i mean she's screaming i think she went through the trap 7200 rpms so it's 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 moving and there's noise but i don't hear it you know i'm, I'm so focused that you know it's gotta be something major for me to to take my concentration off listen to that guidance system and that again like the everything that goes into that is amazing and i would like to know this is just something i, I was thinking of as we've been conversing is you know you've worked with these different organizations that you know help people with being blind has what you've done has that kind of trickled down into helping other people as far as technology and what you've kind of really helped develop it will, um, you know, one of the sponsors for the Corvette is Cruise, uh, getcruise.com, and they're an autonomous car company based in San Francisco. So they're one of the, the two leading car, autonomous car manufacturers that um, has the upper level, uh, uh, I guess, permission, I'm trying to think of the word I'm trying to think of, um, from the government to have fully autonomous cars, so ride shares and delivery. So we're working with them so they have an accessible car up front you know accessibility is not going to be an afterthought you know and um so that you know the blind people can you know fetch one of their cars and you know program it where they're going to go and get out and they know they're there and you know so that's one of the things that we're working on with them 
to help with accessibility because, you know, this story of mine, you know, 1% of my story is about Dan Parker, the racer, and measure my success in miles per hour. The other 99% of the story is about inspiring blind people and all people with disabilities of what their potential is, educate society to know what our capabilities are, you know, and that for them to know if we're given an accessible world, we can compete in the workplace, classroom, or at the racetrack, you know, and sadly before COVID, the unemployment rate for the blind, 70% in America and 99% worldwide. So with today's technology, it's amazing what blind people can do. There, you know, there's blind lawyers, there's blind accountants, you know, there's, there's so many jobs that a blind person can do, but sadly in the sighted world, if somebody discloses on the resume, they're blind, they're automatically dismissed. You know, of course, they're not going to know that's why because, you know, the American Disability Act is supposed to level the playing ground, but it's real world. It happens. But we're hoping with my story getting out there and other stories that we're helping change the perception of what is possible for the blind. So when a blind person comes to enroll in a classroom or apply for a job, they're not automatically told no. You know, and that that's what this whole story is about. You know, last week, CBS did a segment on me, and um, not sure if you saw it. But yeah, I did. A little tit, yeah, a little Ted that, you know, blindness does not have these limitations. You know, it's, it's limiting factors, not blindness. And that's what this whole project is about. You know, the guest record and the, and the mile an hour speed is, is icing on the cake. But, you know, to, you know, inspire blind youth that they can be involved in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, because I designed this race car, you know, I, uh, you know, I know every aspect of the race car. I make judgment calls on it. And so the, there's so much more to the story than just that 211 mile an hour record. Well, that's why I was, I was kind of figuring and going with that was the fact that, you know, when you're developing technology, I think unless people have been, I guess, for lack of better terms, in that world or understand what goes in when you're developing a product or something that, it can be a challenge to really kind of make that happen because it's, you have to put something through its paces and, you know, drag racers are awesome. Racers in general are awesome at tearing stuff up and finding the limits. And what better way for an autonomous car company to learn what the limits are than to get, to, to get in, to get in line with a bunch of us knuckle dragging Neanderthals that like to find ways to tear stuff up because you're going to well, f- find the way. Well, that, and, and I had a blind person the other day on a message board or something make the comment that, you know, what I'm doing doesn't relate to the real world. And I told him, yes, it does. Because, you know, when John F. Kennedy announced that we were going to put a man on the moon, you know, look at how much stuff was developed in those years. And now the phones that we have in our pocket have more computing power than the Apollo missions did by far, you know, that took up, you know, buildings of all the computers they were, you know, using. And um, so it trickles down, you know, and, and my project would trickle down. And um, we, you know, Patrick Johnson, the engineer at Boeing, he built all this guidance system on his own free time for free for donation. Or, you know, I had to buy all the, the hardware and there's some crazy expensive sensors in this thing and um 
but he loves the project. He loves the challenge and he loves the technology. And um, when we I came back from Arkansas last year, I realized I needed a better way to practice. Um, you know, my Corvette's like, it's a race car. So, you know, it takes 45 minutes to turn around from a pass. So I put it out on Facebook, looking for a cheap 90s Corvette. It had similar handling characteristics to the race car, decent acceleration. Um, that's the only stipulation. It has to be automatic air conditioning. has to work. A local guy sold me one cheap. So we went and built a second guidance system. And so I could go and um, take, you know, Patrick would fly down his plane. We'd go to the Phoenix, get in the Corvette. We'd go to Phoenix City Drag Strip and just beat that Corvette up for a couple hours making hot laps. Just, you know, pass after pass after pass. We went through two sets of brakes. We burnt train emission up at spaceport practicing, but that was so valuable to give me that that practice time. So it's a constant evolution. And then, you know, our next project is we want to build a semi-autonomous bicycle for the blind. You know, and that that's our next goal, and we'll have it. And uh, so what we're learning today will translate into some real-world benefits for the blind down the road. Yes. Oh yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the 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 what you're doing with the this, the autonomous vehicle stuff pairs so perfectly with drag racing because what does every drag racer at any level absolutely crave and, and strive for? Data, and when you're developing a vehicle like that and those systems that are going to be used in the real world in different situations. The data that I, I can only imagine the engineers pouring over that data going, oh, my God, we have like that's going to open doors they didn't even know needed to be opened. You know, and and working with them to make the, the Thomas cars accessible so that, you know, if a blind person or deaf blind person gets in there, they can program the car to where they need to go, understanding their surroundings when they get there, um, you know, it. it like the data information and, and sharing it is, is invaluable. You know, it just, it's, and that's, there's been a lot of that with this project, you know, and learning what we need as a blind society to be able to have accessibility in the Thomas rides, you know, because transportation has been my whole life. You know, I raced bicycles as a kid to, you know, cars and adult, you know, so that, you know, transportation is freedom. You know, and we're, we're, we're spoiled in America. You know, when I, when I talk to Mike Newman in England and he talks about, you know, a 200-kilometer trip is a far trip over in England, I said, hell, man, that's just getting started around here. You know, when I told him it took us 48 hours driving to get to Bonneville, you know, he can't imagine being in a car for that long, you know, and, and you know, it, it, so it, and that's, that's what America is built on, transportation, you know, exploration. And so we're, we're trying to open that back up for the blind. Dan, you're turning science fiction into science fact. Mm -hmm. that, that's what literally you're doing. You're like legit changing the course of history. And that's just, to me, that's absolutely amazing. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I've always been a humble person, so I've never really looked at it that way. But, you know, I know that what I'm doing now will definitely help people in the future. And that's what it's about. And, um, you know, I'm blessed to have the opportunities I've had, but also have many sleepless nights because I have what I call the curse of the inventive mind. And most drag racers have it too. When you're used to sort of thinking about whether you're calculating gear ratios or, you know, 
clutch setups or nitrous setups or whatever, your mind never stops for a successful racer. And that's that's how it is here. About a month before the wreck, Jennifer and I was watching TV and I pick up my phone, hit Siri, and I say, what's, you know, 5,280 times 12 times 3.5 divided by 91 times 2.56. And that's telling me my, you know, engine RPM with a 256 gear with a 29-inch tall tire at 210 miles an hour. And she looks over at me. She goes, do you ever stop? <laughs> I said, I can't. I can't turn it off. You know, that's just who I am. You know, and, uh, you know, so that's just what we do, you know. Well, then our time is starting to wind down. And I always like to ask my guests fun questions, you know, kind of kind of catch them off guard or, you know, make them think or go in a different direction. And for you, you know, over the course of our conversation, I've come to the realization that your story needs to be in a Hollywood movie. Like it it would be better than most of the junk that they put out there now. So Dan, we're going to play a game here where you are being tasked with help tell your story in a movie and they ask you, Dan, who do you want to play the role of Dan Parker in the story of you, this amazing adventure? What actor <laughs> would you want any actor that's I'll have to say currently alive who who would be Dan Parker in the Dan Parker movie? I don't know if it'll be Johnny Knoxville or or something like Kevin Costner <laughs> or something because you know. Um, in some ways, I'm an absolute idiot, you know, and but I want it to be portrayed seriously, you know. But uh, when you when you tell people what I've done, and what, they're, they're like, they just, you know, this is bull crap, you know. So, so in some ways, it might need to be Johnny Knoxville. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that you just said Johnny Knoxville made my day because I that, that's that's awesome that you have that sense of humor still about it that it's on Johnny Knoxville without hesitation that's amazing <laughs> oh that that that's awesome that that that's the that's the answer I don't think you could top that answer <laughs> yeah so if anybody's got Johnny's phone number shoot it to me I want to give him a call and uh it was cool this morning you know my brain injury I suffer from headaches and neuro fatigue every day about lunchtime, I lay down, take a nap. That's just what I have to do. That's that's my new normal. You know, I don't fight it anymore. Um, so I woke up this morning about four o'clock with a pretty good headache. I took some medicine, laid back down, and um, I knew I had a, I did a podcast right before hours here for for a blind group. So I knew I had to get my butt out of bed. And I hit my phone. And I had like ten notifications. I thought, man, who in the hell is calling me at eight o'clock in the morning? Well, anyway. The Rick and Bubba radio show was talking about me, and so that was pretty cool. You know, their national syndicated show out of Birmingham. So I called Patrick. He's the one the engineer designed the guidance system. He's one of the one that sent me a text message. He sent me the phone number, so I called the show. And it only rang about six times, and the, the screener came on, and I, he says, "What's your name? And what's your purpose?" I said, "Dan Parker." I said, "I'm the blind guy that they were just talking about on the show." He goes, "Are you for real?" I said, yeah, for real. And uh, he said, hang on a minute. <laughs> and so one of them came on the show and on the phone, and he said, man, we want to have you on here right now, but we got a schedule. You know, we already had an interview scheduled, so we're going to do something down the road. But, you know, it, it's amazing some of the opportunities I've had. And, but I've fought hard to get this sponsorship. I can't tell you how many hundreds of emails I've sent out and not have one response. 
I said, I can't remember who it was, but I sent an email out to try to share my story to a company. I, at that time, I probably sent 75 emails, and the lady responded back, you know, told me no, they weren't interested. And I sent her a thank you email just for responding. I said, you're the first person that's actually responded to me. I said, getting your no this morning was just a joy that, you know, my, my emails weren't going out in cyberspace to, to a black hole, you know, and it's been tough, but it's, but it's I've been blessed to have a lot of companies support me and, and people donate their time. And I want to thank every one of them because uh, this would still be a dream without a lot of people's help. And Johnny Knoxville, if you're listening Make this happen. You need to make this movie yeah. happen. You you have a production company. Make it happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that would Johnny. Be... Give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the, the conversations that would happen from that you, that would be just that would be a fun movie within the movie. <laughs> yeah. where, whereas Agent Agent, Agent explains to me, he goes, "You want me to do what? I'm in." <laughs> that's right, and I'm, I'm gonna get some t-shirts made. And I'm gonna put on there. I do all my own stunts. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, yeah. That just put your face on the shirt. Says you know Dan Parker. I do my own stunts. And like yeah. those who get the joke would absolutely love it. Yeah, that's it. Well, Dan, our time here is coming to an end. I'd like to give my guests their opportunity to you know channel their old inner John Force racer and thank who they need to thank and tell people where they can you know learn more about what you got going on. So Dan, the floor is yours, my friend. You know, tell people where they can learn more and thank who you need to thank. I want the, the National Federation of the Blind, the Blind Driver Challenge, um, NFB.org, the uh, BlindDriverChallenge.org, Cruise Autonomous at GetCruise.com. You know, for all the support, believing in me, um, I'm gonna get emotional. I'm gonna start tearing up here in a minute, but you know, it's real. But whenever I think of all the people that sacrifice so much time and donations and money and product. It's overwhelming. You know, it's, it's, this has been a challenge. This ain't been easy, but I've been blessed. And um, too many times in life, we don't count our blessings. So I can't start naming them or I'd, I'd miss somebody, but they know who they are. And, and um, I've had a lot of people make fun of me, but I have a lot of people believe in me too. And um, if anybody wants to follow me, they on my social media, Facebook, Tragedy to Triumph Racing, or The Blind Machinist. And uh, if you want to buy one of my pens, go to theblindmachinist.com. Check it out. The Treasure Trap Racing Blind Machinist on Facebook is free. I hope you take away some inspiration and to uh, know that if you take quitting off the table, it's amazing what you can accomplish. And that that's, you know, when I took quitting, when I took suicide off the table, is when I opened up the doors for where I'm at today. And that goes for all of sighted, blind, disabled, it doesn't matter. When you take quitting off the table, it's amazing what you can accomplish. I appreciate you inviting me on the show, and I hope everybody takes a little bit away from it. Dan, I don't know how they couldn't take something positive away from this. I appreciate you taking taking the time to, to speak with us today, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, catch up with the track soon, my friend. Good deal, brother. You have a good one. You too.